Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We're going to be leaving, and soon after the broadcast, making our way west, we're going out to the Oklahoma City area, a couple of assignments and speaking engagements in that part of the world. And by the way, on Wednesday, as we make our way west, we're going to stop at Brandon House's location, his ministry headquarters, and there we're going to do a number of television programs. I think we were on the air yesterday, and he told me we're going to do about 12. We covet your prayers. You know, doing 12 TV broadcasts, it's not just like falling off a log. So it's going to be a little bit tedious on Wednesday. You pray for us as you will and our safety as we travel out to Oklahoma. Right now, though, we're going to catch one of our broadcast partners. He's on his way to Vermont. I'm not sure if it's on a way to a meeting or sloping through the snow of Vermont. I don't know which is best, but uh, Ken Timmerman is our guy. I told him before we went on the air, he was like the Energizer Bunny, going from here to there and being available for us. Uh, He's in an automobile moving towards Vermont, so the signal may not be all the way up to par, but we had to have him so much to talk about. Ken, I want you to have a great weekend, whatever you're going to be doing up there, buddy. Thanks, Jimmy. We're going to be catching powder at Mad River Glass. (laughs) I'm sure it's going to be a lot of it up there. Well, have a great time and do be careful. We don't want you to be hurt. you got too many things to do. Let's talk about uh, the uh, Turkish leader, our good old buddy Tayyip Erdogan, and he has now declared jihad, Islamic jihad, on the Kurds located there in Syria. He wants them totally destroyed. What are your thoughts? Well, pretty extraordinary that Erdogan, whose country, Turkey, as a very large Kurdish minority, should be employing Islamic terms uh, like this against an entire ethnic group. Uh, There's a term for this, uh, Jimmy, in normal diplomatic and political discourse. It's called a call to genocide, and that is what Erdogan is doing. He's calling to genocide against an entire ethnic group uh, in Syria and, you know, by extension, uh, the Kurds in Turkey as well. When we think about that part of the world, we also cannot go away from Turkey and or Iran, but Syria is a major player. They're into their seventh year of the civil war, and that's a pretty bad time that they are going through. But when I think about that, I have to think about Iraq. Syria and Iraq became the caliphate, I would guess you have to say, or at least the beginning of the caliphate for Islamic State. Now that's pretty much done, and I hear there's a report that the major Iraqi operation wrapping up with the United States moving out to focus on aid for northeast Syria. So all the players are still at their location on the stage, United States moving from one part of the stage to the other. Is that good or bad? Well, uh, there have been major changes over the past couple of weeks as the U.S. has reinforced its presence, as the Russians have shown that they're able to move aircraft, combat aircraft around from base to base, and even get engaged on the ground. There's reports this week that the United States, for the first time that I'm aware of, had a military confrontation with the Iranian-backed Hezbollah militia, in northeastern Syria, uh, reportedly a hundred Hezbollah fighters were killed in a U.S. airstrike after Hezbollah, backed by Syrian government troops, tried to attack our people 
in northeastern Syria. So things are really heating up quite a bit. And you mentioned Iraq and all this, Jimmy. You know, I've got a new book coming out in June, but it should be available in about another three or four weeks. It's called ISIS Begins, and it's about how ISIS really started in Syria and Iraq. The opening scene is the takedown of a jihadi network in Al-Qaim, which is right on the border with Syria, and they were uh, awaiting for militants to come in from Syria to fight inside Iraq. Now it's going in the opposite direction, but that border between Iraq and Syria has been fluid for a long time and controlled by jihadi fighters. Is that the same area, Ken, that uh, I understand a Russian aircraft was shot out of the sky uh, the pilot, I believe, ejected from the aircraft, but they beat him to death when he got on the ground. Is that the same location? No. So that's the other side of Syria. If you wish, if you're looking at Syria, uh, the Iraqi border is to the right, right? It's to the north and to the east. And that incident happened in Idlib, which is closer to the Mediterranean, where al-Qaeda-affiliated fighters used an IGLA missile. This is a surface-to-air, a Russian surface-to-air a 24 missile, which I believe, with all likelihood, was shipped from Benghazi in Libya mm. while Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State as part of that secret arms pipeline from Benghazi to the Syrian rebels. I had pictures that I posted on my website, KenTimmerman.com. When you look at my earlier book about Benghazi, it's called Dark Forces. You can see the pictures there of these uh, Syrian rebel fighters sporting those uh, surface-to-air missiles that were used just this past week against the Russian Su-25. Now, you mentioned al-Qaeda. Let me follow that then with uh, what I've heard is a regrouping in Tunisia by al-Qaeda uh, since uh, Islamic State has had some setbacks in that part of the world. What's the story on that? Well, so al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, uh, AQIM, has been a, a pretty powerful force on the ground. Remember, they were in Benghazi. They've been in Algeria in a big way, but they were routed somewhat in Tunisia, and they've never gotten a foothold in Morocco. So what al-Qaeda is trying to do now is essentially regroup its forces in Tunisia, move some of the leadership from Algeria into what they think is a more permissive environment. But a couple of their fighters got whacked in the past week or so by the Tunisian security forces who are getting a lot of security assistance from the United States and from the French. You know, a moment ago we were talking about possibly in the area uh, there was a Russian aircraft shot out of the sky, and for some reason I was thinking that somehow America might have been involved on the ground in that situation. Uh, but again, here's another report. The United States Air Force is involved. Artillery strikes on Hezbollah and Iran on the forces in the eastern part of Syria. That may well be across the other side. But the United States has been somewhat absent, absent without leave or a wall, And uh, they also have been silent in that part of the area. Does this mean an uptick on America getting back involved there in Syria? Oh, absolutely. And that's been one of the really fundamental changes since Donald Trump has been president, since James Madison, General James Mattis, has been Secretary of Defense. We now have a couple of thousand, it's not sure how many, advisors on the ground. And in this latest fight that you just mentioned, where they killed 100 Hezbollah fighters in eastern Syria, that's the first really direct military confrontation with U.S. boots on the ground and Iranian-backed fighters. Until now, the U.S. has played an advisory role, 
during the Obama administration, it was mainly a recruiting and training role. We spent $800 million to train fighters for the Free Syrian Army. At the end of the day, we found five of Congress was informed that the U.S. military had trained five of those fighters for $800 million. Not a very, very cost-efficient operation. So that has all turned around and changed dramatically uh, in the past six months. Can't get our focus off of Russia there in Syria. In fact, Nikki Haley had her focus on that part of the world as well. She somewhat spoke up against Russia for failing to actually act to prevent a Syrian chemical weapons attack. Syria is still involved using chemical weapons, and why hasn't Russia done something about it? Uh, well, there you go. And that, those are very good questions, and Nikki Haley is asking them publicly. Remember, the Russians claimed with uh, a, a great deal of pride and, and uh, that, that they had in, gotten Assad in 2013 to give up his chemical weapons, and they say, we're monitoring this, it's all under control, and over the past year and a half, two years or so, we've seen instance after instance, I think there's now several dozen cases where Syria has used chlorine gas, which is a chemical weapon, against some of the opposition forces, and Nikki Haley says, look, enough is enough, Russia, you claim that you had put an end to this, that you were involved in monitoring it, well, clearly you're not, so uh, get off the dime and start making sure that Syria no longer uses chemical weapons on the battlefield. And at the same time, Russia condemning the United States uh, because of the nuclear bomb plans that were suggested, I would imagine, in the State of the Union message that President Trump gave. Uh, Does Russia have any right to condemn anybody on the nuclear weapons situation? Well, it's a very interesting situation because uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, announced quite publicly this past week that the United States was going to follow up on the president's announcement and develop a new generation of smaller nuclear weapons. And he specifically said these are not tactical nuclear weapons because we do not see them as battlefield weapons. But there is a certain country, and he did not name Russia, but he was clearly talking about Russia. There is a certain country that considers small nuclear weapons to be tactical weapons, that can be used on the battlefield, and we need to deter them from using them. The Russians believe that because all of our nuclear weapons, the ones currently in the arsenal, are huge weapons, I mean, 20 megatons, 50 megatons, 100 megatons weapons, that we will never use them. And if the Russians use a small one, just a tiny one, in the battlefield in Syria or someplace else, that we won't be able to respond. Well, Mattis said, no, 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 we want to have small nuclear weapons in our arsenal so we can deter the Russians strategically from ever using any nuclear weapon. And that, again, that's a change in strategy. I think it's a very wise move, and it's not surprising that the Russians are upset. And to me, that also exposes the Russian intent here. You know, that is very interesting. Our Secretary of Defense shifting the focus from the Islamic radicals to Russia and or China as the number one threat to the United States. We'll stay on top of that story, and of course we'll do it with our good buddy Ken Timmerman. Folks, I just heard on this broadcast he's just written a book. I don't know how he gets time to do all of that, but we are so thrilled he takes a few moments to be with us here on Prophecy Today. Hey, have a great time on the slopes, Ken. Appreciate it. Be safe there. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. It's always my pleasure. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I've got David Dolan standing by. He's got a Middle East news update for us. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. 
just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set, every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm going to go right into my conversation with David Dolan. We have a lot to cover as David gives us his Middle East news update. David, uh, you know last week we kind of had all of our listeners hanging in there trying to find out what that Russian delegation had to talk about when they came to Israel after Prime Minister Netanyahu had been to meet with Putin there in Russia. Let's talk about that. What do we know now? I think, as I understand it, uh, the Russian delegation wanted to make sure that Israel would not attack uh, going after Iran or Hezbollah, going after Syria, all, what is that? What's it all about? Straighten it out for us. Well, it definitely was, as I suspected, uh, the focus of their meeting uh, when they met Putin and Netanyahu, uh, Iran, and Iran's role in Syria in particular. And this week, Prime Minister Netanyahu toured the Golan Heights with his cabinet, and he made some comments about that Russian meeting. And he said, quote, we are now on the cusp of a watershed moment of whether Iran will entrench itself in Syria or if the process will be stopped. I told Putin that if it isn't stopped by itself, we, in other words, Israel, will act to stop it, to stop Iran from setting up a base in Syria. In practice, he said, we are already operating. Well, as if to prove that point, Israeli jets once again fired rockets at a Syrian military position um, west of Damascus uh, two days ago that uh, is a, a known base for moving weapons into Hezbollah in Lebanon. And, of course, Israel's second concern is that Iran is strengthening itself in Lebanon. 
But basically, Netanyahu has laid out a very clear red line here, Jimmy, that Israel will not just sit by and let Iran take over Syria or at least set up major bases in Syria. They simply will not permit that. He made that clear to Putin. We don't know exactly how Putin reacted, but we can assume he took it seriously because, as you said, then this delegation came to have further meetings with the government and further discussions on apparently this topic. Nevertheless, Jimmy, it certainly didn't stop violence. And as you know, there's been clashes in Syria this week that we can discuss. But that's what the topic was. And Israel is just very, very adamant. Iran cannot be allowed to set up a mini-state, as it were, in Syria, as they have already basically done in Lebanon. Well, and actually, David, that was one of the headlines that I was going to ask you about. Israel is headed for a war in Syria, and only Russia can stop that war. Now, that's the headline, but is that reality from what you've just reported? Well, Jimmy, what is being said in the last couple of days in the Israeli press, and it's not just in the Israeli press, of course, but mainly I've seen it there, is the question, is the United States about to go to war with Russia in Syria? Now, that is really uh, something that looks possible, and particularly since we had this dramatic battle this week, couple days ago, where Syrian troops were involved and other pro-Assad regime forces, but there are reports in Israel that Russian ground forces were also involved in an attack on a pro-American Sunni Arab base that's uh, in eastern Syria, and there were coalition forces, i.e. American forces, and others were there at the time when this attack took place. And so, of course, the U.S. counterattacked, ordered its aircraft into action and bombed these uh, attacking fighters, and they believe maybe up to 100 were killed, most of them Syrian soldiers. Now, that's the first time that American aircraft have directly targeted Syrian troops, Jimmy. This has never happened before. The Russians were very livid about it and said, you know, this is going to spark off a whole major conflict. Of course, the Defense Department and the State Department responded in Washington defending the U.S. actions, saying, we didn't provoke this attack. These are our forces. You know that they're our allied forces. You know that they're working with us to continue the fight against ISIS. ISIS still has some land in that area that they control. And we have this agreement that we can pursue them, and now you're coming in and attacking us directly. So it looks, Jimmy, like the Russian response, which it's uh, carrying on through Assad, is to take on uh, the Western coalition forces, and by proxy, Israel would be considered part of that. So we may be on the verge of an all-out hot war, not just between Israel and Syria, but possibly between their, their mentors, their patrons, the United States and its allies, and Russia and its allies. Well, it looks like that sleeping giant, i.e. the United States military forces, is about to wake up. They've been silent there in the Middle East for a long time, which has given advantage to the Russians to expand their presence and their their capabilities right there in Syria. I mean, this is pretty tough business, is it not? Well, indeed, Jimmy, and when the Obama administration threatened to counter any use of chemical weapons in Syria in a major way and then didn't do that, when Hillary Clinton, then Secretary of State, said, we will insist on Basra Assad getting out of power soon, this was in like 2012, 
and then there was no action taken to follow that up, well, then uh, Assad invited the Russians to come in. And they came in with the vengeance and have basically taken over the country. And U.S.-backed forces are fighting now against Syrian forces in the east. And in the north, of course, we have Turkey invading the northwest of Syria, uh, going against pro-American-backed forces there, mostly Kurdish forces there. So there's you're developing on several fronts there, Jimmy, that, that's going to involve other powers. And certainly Israel will be pulled into this, but it's looking more and more to me like this is on the horizon. And, of course, as I've said before, it may well be coordinated with some sort of U.S. action in Korea, uh, which uh, uh, many are speculating is probably going to follow the Olympics because uh, probably the North Koreans will again start testing their missiles. In fact, they're saying they will soon after. And during their parade this week, they basically vowed to continue their war against the United States. And, of course, Iran and North Korea are close allies, and Russia is thought to be backing North Korea, too. So we're seeing the, the development of a possible world war here, Jimmy, and it's looking very ominous indeed. I think one more player that we need to bring to the table in our conversation is uh, Hezbollah there in southern Lebanon. And there would be reasons why Israel would uh, go in to go to war with Hezbollah. I think Israel's ready right now, aren't they? Well, they are, Jimmy. And again, you know, we've got to remind our listeners from the get-go Israel had no beef against Iran. Iran started this war after their 1979 revolution. They created this militia in 1981 and 82 in Lebanon, Hezbollah. They went on the offensive against Israeli forces there, claiming, of course, it was to defend Lebanon. But they've, been, in more recent years, made it clear what their real objective is, and that, of course, is Iran's objective. I'm talking about Hezbollah destroy Israel, wipe out its cities, the Jews have no right to be here, it's going to be eliminated. They're the ones waging war. Now, again, Israel has no beef against Russia. The last thing that the Israelis want to do is take on Russian military forces, but basically it appears that Netanyahu warned Putin that if you get in the way uh, and try to prevent us from keeping Iran out, then we will take you on as well, and we're prepared to take you on as well. And apparently the U.S. is now saying the same thing. So it's a very serious situation. But again, this isn't a battle being started by the West or by Israel. It's by the other side, her enemies. Meanwhile, back in the state of Israel, there's a Islamic caliphate leader located up near Nazareth, I believe it is. He's made the statement that Jerusalem, in the very near future, will be the capital of the Islamic caliphate. What do you know about that? Well, that's certainly their dream. That's certainly their goal. I mean, what they would really like to do is take over Mecca, of course. That's their ultimate goal. But taking over uh, Jerusalem would be a wonderful thing to them and, of course, would be uh, a huge confirmation of their belief that Islam is the final faith and the Quran is the final truth and Muhammad was the greatest prophet. And as I've stated before, they believe that those uh, things were proved by their original conquest of Jerusalem ousting the Christians and Jews that were there at the time, and then they lost it to the Crusaders. They got it back, and then they lost it at the end of World War One. as the Turks were then ruling, the Muslim Turks. So they want to get Jerusalem back in the biggest way, and that's going to be their goal always, and Israel's always going to have to fight against that. But, of course, if Iran is just north of Israel with forces instead of 
six eight hundred miles to the east, that makes a different war entirely. And so, and as you know, said, we're just not going to allow it to get to that point. We're going to stop it now. He said, we're actually doing it now, and this is just going to progress, Jimmy. Well, I do believe that uh, one of the key reasons that I think it's essential we have you report your Middle East news update for us on a weekly basis is we stay on top of all of these things because, as we've mentioned, different nations, different entities, different personalities, we've basically been discussing the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word. David, thank you so very much. You're just on top of everything going on. We need to contact you every week. Thank you for letting us do that. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. Good week. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to find out from Winky Medad, what's this problem between Poland and those who are survivors of the Holocaust, and in particular, the focus on the Jewish state of Israel? Very important and serious discussion. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back now to Prophecy Today Weekend. We move into the second half hour of the broadcast. We ask for three half hours each week, 90 minutes. That's all we need to inform you of what's going on in our world, looking at current events in light of biblical prophecy. Well, as promised, we're going to Shiloh in the center part of the state of Israel, uh, which many people refer to as a settlement, but it's a Jewish community in one of the oldest, most historic and biblical cities in all of the Jewish world. Winky Madad, former mayor of Shiloh, joining us. He's been a politician. He's been a one who watches the media as it relates to the Israeli media. He's worked at the former Menachem Begin Center. I mean, the guy's a researcher, has done everything, and we're so grateful that Winky is one of our broadcast partners. Winky, the reason I'm trying to get in contact with you today is I want to understand what's going on between Poland and Israel as it relates to the Holocaust. Now, I've noticed here in America, uh, they are going after Poland. I know the prime minister, other political leaders there in Israel, have been very much concerned about a Polish law that was just passed, and I do believe the president has signed the law. Can you give us some kind of an explanation what the law is and why is everybody so much upset? 
All right, let's do this, Jimmy, in several quick layers of uh, history and recognition of current politics. Nazi Germany conquered most of Europe, as some of us old people remember or <laughs> from our history books, yeah. uh, into Russia and across to France and even to North Africa. In each of those countries, there were varying degrees of cooperation between the previous local governments, like in Norway, we had the famous Quisling government, and in France, we had a Vichy government, and in Poland, however, the government ran away and set itself up in England, and it was an active anti-German, anti-Nazi underground, uh, several small armies, actually, from the left to the right. There were communists, there were extreme right-wingers. And as we all know, the Jewish people in several ghettos, most famously in the Warsaw Ghetto, formed their own underground and fought the Germans. All during these years after World War II, here and there, and increasingly till maybe about two or three years ago, it was accepted to say Polish concentration camps. And the Poles rightfully took umbrage at this definition because they weren't Polish camps. They were, happened to be German or Nazi concentration camps, such as Auschwitz and, and Majdanek and other places, that were on Polish soil. And most other governments, including even France, of course Germany, and some of the other Baltic states, have apologized for any sort of collaboration or cooperation between their peoples and the Germans in persecuting and actually hunting down Jews. We have the famous case of Anne Frank, who was handed over to the Nazis in Amsterdam, not uh, by anybody except by uh, a Dutchman. So there was this unfortunate uh, development in World War II. The Poles, though, recently uh, have been electing more right-wing and nationalist governments, and they tried to do something about it. They took it very much to heart, and this is the result of the law, which says you are not allowed to say Polish concentration camps. And in addition, they said if anybody misrepresents the Holocaust history in Poland, they are subject to uh, criminal prosecution. That is the background. The only unfortunate thing, Jimmy, is that during the 20s and 30s, there were pogroms against Jews in Poland. From 1944 to 1946, basically by the time Poland was being liberated until after, a whole year after the war, we have records of at least three to 500 Jews being killed by Poles. In other words, basically after the war, the famous one was at Kilcha in central Poland in 1946. And we do know of Poles who handed over Jews to the Nazis just as they were Poles, righteous Gentiles, who served out their faith, some of them even dying in the process, in saving Jews, hiding them. You probably remember a former speaker of the Knesset, Shevach Weiss, mm -hmm. who was hidden for almost two years under the floor mm -hmm. of a home in Poland uh, with non-Jews. So it's a very complicated history, and that's the background. Now, then why politically is there opposition from Israel and even the opposition from the United States? The opposition comes because the law just doesn't say you can't say Polish concentration camps anymore. 
but it begins to enter the field of saying that in argumentation, in publishing articles in the newspapers, I don't think it covers academic articles, but in normal discussions, these things can become criminalized. So ultimately, Israel wants to keep the facts straight and just present the truth to to the world, not only to the Polish people, but actually to the entire world. That's true. I mean, look, I'm not going to say it's not a delicate topic, one that is fraught with tensions. In the previous years, there was a more, uh, don't forget, Poland was communist up until basically 1968. And so the communists ran after what they called the fascists or the right-wing nationalists. And there were many trials up until about 54, 55, of Poles who handed over Poles as well as uh, Jews to the Nazis. Auschwitz, at first, uh, before it became a Jewish concentration camp, there were thousands of Poles who either communists, socialists, or otherwise were being sent there also before it became a death factory in the sense of gas chambers before they set up up. It's a very difficult subject. Everybody is very, we have a phrase in Yiddish, sitting on nails. Uh, everybody's very sensitive about it, and instead of talking about it rationally, emotions get high, and uh, we've had a little bit of uh, tension and conflict between our government and, Pol- and the Polish government, even despite outreaching talks between the two countries. You know, over my history of living in Israel there for some 26 years, I met some former Polish citizens who have been a part of the Holocaust situation, the Warsaw Ghetto, as you just mentioned. And uh, this was very personal as it relates to them as well. In fact, the Holocaust itself was a major horrific event that took place in the history of the Jewish people, was it not? Yes, it was. The lead-up to it from about 33, when Hitler came to power to 39, in terms of legislation which simply dehumanized Jews through the matter of employment, uh, racial laws, uh, anti-marriage laws, everything to make them outcasts. And then with the war beginning, they were being hunted down. They were, Of course, there was a famous uh, Kristallnacht in 1938, once uh, 300 synagogues were destroyed, and it was a process that kept on going on. But with the Poles, there's a little bit of a difference because Jews do have memories, and my family actually is from uh, eastern Poland, uh, what we call Galicia, in between the world wars. And so they had memories of, of small or larger pogroms. As you mentioned, Jimmy, it's very personal. It's, uh, it wasn't uh, a year or two, it was five years of Holocaust and 20-odd years before, and so uh, this is bad memories, unfortunately, it can also bring about future bad relations. But there is one memory that uh, the Jewish people keep in their heart and minds, and they have done that for many years since the end of the Holocaust. They'll keep it, I would imagine, until the Messiah comes, and that would be the memory of what did happen to the Jewish world during that time, referred to as the Holocaust. That's why they remember it at least once a year, and that's why uh, the statement never again, that's key as it relates to the Holocaust, for the Jewish mindset, correct? Absolutely. There's also another phrase which 
if I'm not mistaken, uh, I, I haven't seen the new Yad Vashem Jimmy's, but I remember the old one. Just before leaving the exhibition, there was a little sign saying, Redemption is found in memory. Mm. In other words, if you don't recall what happened, you cannot be free, you cannot reach out to a true spirituality, you cannot renounce your lackings and failings in your life, and if you can't remember, there is no redemption. You cannot wipe away things. And every country and every people must face up to what happened to them and what they caused, if that was the situation, pain, or even joy to other people. This is, I think, also one of the lessons that we can gain from a spiritual view, uh, as, or as you say, a prophetic view of world events. Winky, I have to stop a moment and thank you so very much. Since your background comes from Poland, your family, and they've even lived there and suffered through some of those times, I'm just so grateful to you to be able to explain this to us so we could have an understanding and I think it's a current event unfolding in our world that we need to know about. So thank you for uh, allowing us to get from you personally how this is all developing and what the future may hold. Thank you so very much, Wiki. I appreciate it. We'll talk again maybe about something not quite as sad as the Holocaust, but we'll do it in the future. Jimmy, thank you for the opportunity of talking, and thank you and the listeners and everybody should have a great week upcoming. Very, very important conversation with Winky Madad, focusing on the new Polish law that was just signed into effect, how it relates the Israelis, and in particular, survivors of the Holocaust. And, of course, a very serious and very important conversation. Thank you, Winky Madad. I so appreciate that. Well, here's another man. I'm always grateful that he joins us at this broadcast table. I'm talking about Dr. Rob Congdon. He looks at the European Union. This is a key region of the world. If you are a student of Bible prophecy, you'll recognize that immediately. And Rob and I are going to talk politics, but also prophecy at the same time in our conversation today. Rob, Germany, it seems, has been able to put a coalition government together under Chancellor Merkel. Now, this is probably a key as it relates to the entire European Union's future, but for the German people as well, is it not? It is a key. It's been very much a struggle to form the coalition. Remember, Chancellor Merkel has lost significant power and control uh, all over the immigration issue in reality. But this coalition is really kind of a repeat of the one she's already had, and similar to what she's had for almost 12 years now. There's a key difference, though, that we need to note, and that is that this coalition is going to review whether they should continue in two years. Uh, that puts Merkel in a very awkward spot. And, and really what it further means is that if public opinion continues the way it is, she's going to lose more power over her government. Well, uh, what's the wrangling over the foreign minister's position? I seem to think that uh, one of the heads of the party that has formed this coalition was going to become the foreign minister, and some of his people rejected that. Uh, that's right. There, there are real tensions. I, I keep stressing, and I can't stress enough, the people are reacting to what has happened in Germany the last couple of years. And, and the 
people dividing from the idea of the leadership who wants to pursue further immigration, uh, that's no longer quite down party lines. It's not even within parties themselves, individuals. Uh, we're seeing a great tension being created over this situation. Now, is that tension the influx of the Islamic peoples coming in as supposed immigrants from the Middle Eastern countries? Uh, that's right. There's a clear recognition that for the first time in history, and really almost in the experience of Germany, people are coming in who are not trying to become part of the culture and ultimately sort of German, if you will. Instead, this is a group coming in to change their culture. That recognition is growing throughout Europe, but Germany is probably one of the major places to see this because they're among the top two countries in terms of number of immigrants that have come in. And in almost all the cases, the immigrants have the Islamic belief. Well, I have to then ask the question about a headline that I passed along to you, Europe making Islam great again, following a a page out of the game book from Donald Trump, but uh, not good for Europe as it relates to the Islamic problem. No, it's not good for Europe. They, they just haven't grasped, and all you have to do is study history and understand Islam. They must regain lands once lost. And remember before in history, Islam has tried to move into Europe. They got into France, uh, into Spain, and they were then driven out. Uh, they're going to regain that land, but this time their goal is much more. It's the entire European area. You know, that was a key phrase, Rob. The Islamic world must regain land, geographical locations that they lost in the past. Very, very interesting. By the way, that then leads me to the next question. At the Vatican there in Rome, Tayyip Erdogan, who is, of course, the president of Turkey, and the Pope got together a couple of things. First of all, they're going to join forces to fight a fear of the Islamic religion across Europe. And then they're also talking about uh, putting an unholy alliance together. Now, the unholy alliance, that's my phrase, but they're going to put this alliance together to try to control Jerusalem. Address both of those, if you will. Well, this alliance, as you've called it, certainly is, uh, in my view, unholy. What we have is, again, we think of history. The history of Rome has been to compromise. They did it with Germany and its leadership in World War II. Uh, World War I, there was compromises. So it's nothing new under the sun. Uh, Erdogan is really trying to show he is the leader of the Islamic world, and he is smart. We all know the best defense is an offense, and so he's trying to make everybody feel guilty over this reaction to Islam. Uh, in the Pope's case, we have a Pope who's coming in who is probably the most liberal ever, both from a political standpoint and from what we would say is a religious standpoint. So these two could easily align. That's what uh, Erdogan wants. That gives him even more influence in moving his influence to Europe, which is his goal. Well, of course, Turkey, a major player in the end times, and uh, you have to look at uh, what could well be the European Union, uh, headquartered there in the city of Rome, playing a key role with the Islamic invasion, Ezekiel 38, of Israel. There at the beginning of the tribulation period, boy, I mean, this is, again, fitting into that end-time scenario found in the Word of God, isn't it? It certainly is, and we have to remember the seven churches were all in Turkey. Now, I realize they're past 
churches. But historically, it showed that Christian influence was big in Turkey proper. And so, obviously, Satan loves to destroy those influences, even the remnants that still might exist. But it's also where this power can come that I think we're going to see, just as you said, in the very end-time events that lead up to and include the tribulation. Well, we are there at that point. I told you, politics to prophecy. That's what I always do, and I'm chatting with Dr. Rob Congdon. Rob, thank you for an excellent report. Appreciate it. By the way, how did the 50th anniversary weekend go? We had a wonderful anniversary. It was so good. We had our whole family together, all of our children, and first time in nine years we've all been together again. So we thank the Lord for it. Yeah, the Lord blessed. Well, praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Rob. We'll talk again next week. We'll look forward to it. Lord bless. Dr. Rob Congdon, that European Union update. Well, we're going from the European Union to the Far East, and we're going to focus on what's happening as it pertains to North Korea. Are they still a threat, or are they an Olympic team? We'll need to find out, and the man I believe could give us the best information, Colonel Bob McGinnis, who works at the Pentagon. Bob, let me ask that. You know, with all the focus on the Olympics, with the combined teams of North and South Korea for the Olympic team competing there in South Korea, is this just a misdirection? Uh, I mean, is is North Korea still as dangerous as they have been in the past? Oh, probably more so, Jimmy. You know, this is a ploy by them to, to buy time and try to, you know, I suppose coerce or persuade people that really don't understand uh, their long-term ambitions. They still have every intention of becoming a nuclear state that threatens the region and the United States. They have every intention of reunification under their own terms. And they're trying to throw a sop at uh, Beijing and Moscow so that they won't put any more pressure and perhaps will lift some of the sanctions. But don't be fooled by this. This country has not changed its stripes. It's just as, as terrible and uh, mean-spirited and dangerous as it's always been. Well, I think that's evidenced by the fact they would not allow the citizens of North Korea to even watch what was going on there in South Korea, the grand opening of the Olympics there. Uh, But instead, they had footage and uh, live, I guess, coverage of the military parade that they put on. Well, of course, that's part and parcel of totalitarian regimes that they control the propaganda message uh, through all sorts of public media. They could not afford to have someone look at the broadcast from South Korea, much less the video, where you would see people in all sorts of clothing that looked very nice. You would see people that look healthy, and they would look back at themselves, see the rags that they're wearing, and how drawn they look because of malnutrition. So totalitarian regimes just do not do that. They can't survive by uh, undercutting the, uh, I, I suppose, the morale of the people in which they try to dominate. Was it another PR ploy uh, that uh, the leader of North Korea sent his sister to the opening of the Olympics as well? Well, she's one of the few healthy people in North Korea, so you know it's not going to be an embarrassment because they skin a, a skeletal person down there. Now, that's the reality. Uh, She is in the upper crust of that society. Everyone else is starving or 
are fearful of their life. And, of course, he can trust her to send his message and to you know, present a very different image than most people in the world. And, of course, the, the media is going to clamor around her, and they're going to begin to second-guess uh, the messages that they've been hearing from uh, those that have studied North Korea for, for decades. But uh, that's part and parcel of a free press. Now, is this family, you said, have studied North Korea for decades? Basically, it's been this one family for those decades, hasn't it? Yeah, in 1950, Kim Jong-il, the grandfather of the current leader, uh, was, of course, the one that begged uh, Stalin to invade into South Korea, uh, because it was the Stalin who you know held a lot of sway because he was pr- providing all the armaments and and the like to him. And eventually, believing that the Americans would not invade in 1950, he said, "Go ahead, you know, charge toward Pusan." They did, and of course, we were surprised them when President Truman sent uh, you know General MacArthur and our troops back into. Uh, South Korea. So there's a lot of history under this particular bridge. We've been here before. Uh, that's a long time ago, but uh, this particular leopard has not changed its spot. I would imagine that Vice President Pence did not care about the history, but was thinking about the nasty now and now when he rejected an invitation to be able to have dinner with uh, the big one's sister. Yeah, it would be um, highly inappropriate. Uh, given the rhetoric and the threats, and of course uh, the terrible situation of religious, you know, freedom in North Korea, uh, those that are incarcerated by the tens of thousands, you know, the forced labor and so forth, you know, for our p- vice president to sit down, you know, as if nothing has happened. Uh, though this this is a country that's essentially declared war against us uh, and against its own people, so it would be very highly improper for him to do that. What do you think will be going on at the Pentagon? Now, that's where your day job is, and I am not asking you to give us any inside secret information. Uh, but uh, they're prepared for what happens after the Olympics and this propaganda ploy, are they not? Oh, they are. And keep in mind, back in 2014, if your listeners recall, we had the Winter Olympics in the southern caucuses of the USSR. And within two weeks, Vladimir Putin uh, led a charge into take and annex Crimea. And since that time, a civil war has been brewing in eastern Ukraine. Uh, these communists are very much like that. And I put Putin in that same category, even though you know, he says they are no longer communistic. But Kim Jong-un understands uh, how to use a PR event uh, for his own advantage and to put us off balance. Now, this is a time in which we need to be very, very careful about what we believe and what we watch uh, and what we conclude. I'm concerned a bit about what China is thinking and getting ready to do. Do you see them making a move to stand North Korea up or at least stand alongside of them, or do you see that China may be looking our way? Well, China is not going to come our way unless it meets its objectives. President Xi Jinping uh, is is very smart. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has every intention of reaching his two long-term goals, uh, which are uh, having the the premier economy in the world and bringing more employment uh, to his country, but also being 
uh, the most powerful country in the world. Um, and by you know helping North Korea at this point, I think would undercut that particular set of goals. And so uh, he's going to try to rein in this young leader in Pyongyang, uh, and I think he'll do it effectively. He's already you know pinched him pretty bad, and we've seen that evidenced by the fact that this guy's sister is down at the Olympics today. So. You know, I, I think that the Chinese are going to uh, cooperate, um, but keep in mind, it's all about them. It's not about us. Well, this is an ongoing story, is it not, Bob? And we need to stay on top of it to make certain we're ready and alert for whatever may happen. Well, absolutely, Jimmy. It's, it's complex, and I understand the, the, the players and the long-term agendas uh, they speak Chinese, and so uh, unless you either speak Chinese or you have good interpreters, it's kind of hard to understand where they're going. But they're going in a direction that is not necessarily favorable to us. Going in a direction. In the Word of God, Revelation, chapter 16, verse 12, says they'll be around through the tribulation period going together into Jerusalem, ultimately. That's the biblical understanding of what's happening, political playing out in our world today, and that's why we had Colonel Bob McGinnis to help us understand the political events unfolding there in the Far East. Bob, thank you so very much. Great insight, my good friend. Appreciate it so much. Well, thank you, Jimmy. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll be talking with David James. I'm going to ask him the question, why are churches not teaching Bible prophecy today? You need to have an understanding of why that is the case. We'll get that from David James in a moment, right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. This is Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. This is our last half hour. It will conclude the 90 minutes that each and every week I ask you to give me so we can give you the world and the reports from our broadcast partners helping us to understand current events in light of biblical prophecy. We have one more broadcast partner, David James. He's standing by. Actually, he is on the continent of Africa. We'll be talking to him in just a moment. And we're going to be dealing with the question, why are churches and our Christian universities and seminaries not teaching Bible prophecy anymore? Why is that part being taken out of their Bibles? That's 30% of the entire Bible. You don't want to miss that conversation with David James upcoming. May I ask you to do me a favor? I would love for you to answer my poll question. It's on my home page on the left-hand column. If you'll scroll down, you'll see it. Here's the poll question for this week. With Russia so much in the news in Washington and the Middle East, do you believe that Magog... That's what Russia is referred to in Ezekiel 38.2, that Magog, or Russia, could be near the time of the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 38. Well, that's the poll question. Please answer it for us. Love to know what you're thinking along that line. And while you're on my website, prophecytoday.com, check out Joshua Travel. I think we have about six or eight different tours this year. Love to have you come and visit the land of the Bible. Join our prophecy tour in Israel and in other parts of the Middle East as well. Go to the website, find out about it, and make contact with us. We'd love to have you go along on one of these trips. We now bring to these microphones David James. 
And guess where David is this week? I can remember when I used to do a radio broadcast weekly on the Moody Bible Institute. Did it about 18 years, I think. It was always, where do we find Jimmy? Well, where do we find David? He's in Uganda. And shortly before he calls it a night, since East Africa is about eight hours ahead of us, here in the eastern part of the United States at least, thought we'd check in with David. David, how you doing, buddy? Oh, having a great time. Just finished up a week of teaching God's Plan Through the Ages course, and then next week I'll be teaching Signs, Wonders, and the Charismatic Movement. Well, before we move into this week's topic, I think it might be interesting for our listeners to learn a little bit about Word of Life Uganda, since you're involved with that particular ministry each year about this time. Well, yeah, and I think it might be helpful to give a little bit of a geography lesson as well right up front. Uganda is in East Africa. Uh, It's a landlocked country, straddles the equator, is on the shores of Lake Victoria, which is the headwaters for the Nile River, and it's just west of Kenya, directly north of Tanzania, directly east of the Democratic Republic of Congo, and directly south of South Sudan. And the Word of Life ministry has been operating here for maybe a dozen years or so, And like I said, they opened the Bible Institute about four years ago. I had 28 students, and just having the opportunity to influence a number of countries in Africa in in this class, I've taught students, of course, from Uganda, but also from Chad, Ethiopia, Kenya, Liberia, and Rwanda. And also, they have an international school, uh, grade 1 through 12 school on the property of uh, maybe 250 students, and the total staff here is somewhere between 60 and 70. So it's quite an impressive ministry, and it's the Word of Life Africa Bible Institute, and it's only going to grow in the future. Well, praise the Lord for that outreach into this very important continent, especially in the end times, geographically, as you described it, I thought thought you were talking about Bible prophecy there for a moment, but boy, that's exciting to be out there. Well, David, earlier this week, you sent me an article from a Roman Catholic website. It was written by a Jesuit priest who had recently visited the Ken Ham Answers in Genesis Creation Museum. Talk to me about that. Well, that's right. The article appeared on the americamagazine.org website, The subtitle of that website is The Jesuit Review, and the title of this article was Creationism Isn't About Science, It's About Theology, then in parentheses it says, and it's really bad theology. Let me just uh, share with you the opening paragraph. He says the Creation Museum is a $27 million example of how Christians can lose their way fighting the culture wars. After spending time there this Christmas, I felt convinced that as long as a museum's science is the most frightening driver of its logic is an impoverished theology, which is coupled with a desire to win moral arguments. This toxic combination propels devout people into strange and unnecessary battles with modern science. That is quite an opening paragraph. It's pretty strong, absolutely. Man, he looks like he's ready for war. Well, before we dig into actually what the article had to say, let's dig in a bit deeper, if you will. What is the Roman Catholic Church's view concerning the evolution-creation debate? 
Well, I went to an, a Catholic apologetics website called Catholic Answers uh, at Catholic.com, and I was looking specifically for that just to get some definitive answer to that from an apologetics perspective. And what they said is that the Catholic Church allows for the possibility that man's body developed from previous biological forms under God's guidance. In other words, that would be theistic evolution, but it insists on the special creation of his soul. And then they go on to say, so whether the human body was specially created or developed, we require to hold as a matter of Catholic faith that the human soul is specially created. It did not evolve, and it is not inherited from our parents as our bodies are. Now, I need to make a comment about that last statement, because you and I would understand that theologically that we uh, are conceived both body and soul, and we descend from our parents, and that is through that that we actually inherit the sin nature. But the Catholic Church holds to the idea that we are conceived physically by our parents, but God creates a new soul and puts it into the body, and that actually has implications for even the doctrine of salvation in the Catholic Church. Yes, it certainly does, and that gives us a pretty good view of their thoughts about evolution-creation debate. Well, what are a few of the main takeaways from the article, and how, how would you evaluate them? Well, let me just uh, note a few of them that I thought were the most important. For one thing, they say the pseudoscience behind the beautiful exhibits have been sufficiently refuted by more qualified experts. Now, that's a fairly condescending view, because I know for sure that there are a number of highly, highly trained and highly qualified uh, scientists, biologists, physicists, and others who are on the creation uh, museum and the Answers in Genesis staff, whether directly or contributors. And so that is just really out of line in my view. Secondly, they say the creationist engagement with science is a, a consequence of attempting to read Genesis literally. Well, no, that's not really true. It's uh, attempting to read Genesis literally and then realize that we evaluate the world around us in light of Scripture and we look for a reconciliation we're not trying to make science in conflict with the Bible. We're trying to make sure that people are thinking about reality correctly and realizing that when understood correctly, there is no conflict between the Bible and science. And another thing they say is that literal interpretations of the book of Genesis, buttressed by pseudoscience, weakens the standing of Christian conceptions of the human person in our public discourse and they actually make us seem foolish. Well, I think that, again, is another condescending remark, and they say that things like the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter uh, not only hurt our testimony, but they make us seem foolish in the public square. On the other hand, I would say that things like this actually help a broad number of people, in fact, millions of people a year who visit the Creation Museum, see that there really isn't, as I said before, a conflict between uh, science and the Bible, and they actually are a tremendous witnessing tool uh, so that people can realize that they can legitimately take the Bible literally while also accepting a genuine findings of science. David, you know a lot of Christians, even evangelicals, seem to be increasingly accepting theistic evolution as their view of origins. Now, theologically, what do you see as the biggest problem with this view? 
Well, if you think about it, if theistic evolution is true, that means that man ultimately and other life forms developed from lower life forms and that we descended from a common ancestor. Now, that would mean that as you go through time, you get to a point where there are many human-like animals, but they are not yet human. And then you could possibly hundreds of thousands or millions of them. Now, if that is the case, the question is, did God breathe the spirit of life into just two of them? And if that happened, could they then breed with the other animals that are biologically the same but don't have the breath of life and not human beings? Or, alternatively, they are all developing with souls, and if that's the case, that means that there was not a single original pair who committed an original sin from whom the entire human race is descended. Now, if that is true, if, the, if we did not all descend from a single pair and we did not all inherit a sin nature, then that means that not everybody is born with a sin nature, and therefore we are not sinners by nature, and therefore we do not need a Redeemer. So what happens is it cuts ultimately to the heart of the Gospel and takes away the need for the Savior who came to this earth as a man, died on a cross for our sins, uh, so that as the last Adam, he would die in our place, taking the punishment we deserve. It's an extremely important issue. Yes, it it certainly is. It has connections to eternity and how and where we will be during that time. Wow, that is very important. By the way, this is a pretty deep discussion this week. I would suggest right away you might want to remember how to get back to the website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and re-listen to this conversation. I'm certainly going to do that. You may want to as well, and be sure to tell a friend about it. David, as we wrap it up today, young earth creationism has been a thorn in the flesh of evolutionists for a long time. So what do you think are some of the strongest scientific arguments for young earth creationism? Well, let me just note a few of them for you. One is the relatively little sediment on the seafloor, which includes the river deltas. For example, if there were actually billions of years involved, uh, or at least even millions of years involved, the Mississippi River actually should have essentially completely filled up the Gulf of Mexico with all the silt that is carried down from as far as the upper Midwest. Another is bent and tightly folded rock layers with no signs of fracturing. That had to happen, even though the rocks are hard now, it had to happen when they were soft and pliable, which indicates that they were the result of deposition of a major flood and they folded before they hardened. Another is recent discoveries of soft tissue in dinosaur fossils, which is impossible if they are actually millions of years old. Another really interesting one is that there are tree trunks that have been found standing vertical through layers of uh, coal deposits that supposedly took millions of years to develop. Another is that the earliest remnants of any civilization anywhere in the world only goes back about 6,000 years, which would fit identically with the uh, biblical record. And then finally, another one is that the Earth's current population isn't large enough to account for 100,000 years of modern man existing on this planet. Well, those are great 
list of reasons why we need to believe in young earth creationism. But let me just throw one more in, and probably the strongest that I can think of, the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 11, where the Lord says, In giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, I created the heavens, the earth, and all that in them is in six. And as you look at the text, you'll have to recognize six 24-hour days. Well, God's word is absolute, and David has brought our attention to the fact when you look at it closely, you can see science and God's word work hand in hand. David, thank you so very much. appreciate this apologetic today, and have a great time out there in Uganda. Tell everybody we'd love to be out there sometime ourselves, but uh, it's been a joy to be able to talk to you from that Word of Life Bible Institute there in Africa. Talk to you next week, David. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Great to be with you again. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll take a look at the book, all here on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. You know, it's always a privilege for us to have our broadcast partners coming from around the world to give us reports on what's happening in every major region of our world. Now, these are regions that play a key role in the end-time scenario that is found in Bible prophecy. And then when we come together to take a look at the book, we put it together with what God's Word has to say. This is a, a great key 
for our understanding of the days in which we are living. By the way, if you missed any of our broadcast partners, and I'm going to rehearse their lead stories in just a moment with my prophetic perspective, but if you missed any of the broadcast partners, you can go to my website, prophecytoday.com, Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. There we will have all of the interviews with all six of our broadcast partners. Our mission is to alert the world to the soon coming of Jesus Christ and make sure people are prepared, living pure, and productive until the shout does come for us to join him in the air. Again, that website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, and there you can listen to all of the reports we had on Prophecy Today weekend. Right now, though, let's take a prophetic perspective of the news and all that was reported by our broadcast partners. Ken Timmerman, one of the items, and the very first one we talked about, was Turkey declaring war on the Kurds that are located in northern Syria. Now, Tayyip Erdogan really has a problem with the Kurds in his own country. But remember, the Kurds are located in Iran, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. And so Tayyip Erdogan, who wants to be the self-imposed Islamic leader of the entire known world, is doing everything he possibly can to wipe out any and all of his Kurdish enemies. Ezekiel chapter 38 and verses 2 and 6 talks about Turkey. Turkey is key in the end-time scenario found in God's Word. And by the way, Russia has a connection with Turkey, prophetically we're talking about, when Russia will lead that coalition of nations to try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. You might remember several years ago, Russia took Crimea, a part of the Ukraine in the Black Sea, as a warm water port. Then they found out the Black Sea basically is a landlocked piece of water. Only way that any naval operation can get out of the Black Sea is through the Bosphorus River that is located in Turkey, and they can make their way then to the Mediterranean. Key report from Ken Timmerman. David Dolan had a Middle East news update for us. We talked about Russia and why they may stop Israel from trying to attack and destroy Syria. Now, that sounds contradictory to the prophetic scenario that's found in God's Word. And they're going to stop Israel from attacking Syria today? Well, I don't know if that's going to be the case or not. But that's one of the reasons the Prime Minister of Israel went to meet with Vladimir Putin, President of Russia, to warn him that he's not going to allow Iran and Hezbollah to be at Israel's northern border and come in at their will in order to destroy the Jewish state. This is important information, and the reason why the Russian delegation came in to meet with Prime Minister Netanyahu back in his home country, Israel, to try to stop such an attack on Syria. Winky Madad helped us to understand what's going on between Poland and Israel. The Polish parliament has put together a bill that was signed by the Polish president that would make it a crime to mention that Poland had any involvement in the Holocaust. But the Holocaust is a serious situation, a very serious concern of the Jewish people and the very few Holocaust survivors still alive. However, each year and often throughout the year, the Jewish people will stop to remember and say never again. 
But that is not going to be the case according to God's prophetic word. The prophet Zechariah says in chapter 13 and verse 8 that the worst holocaust is yet to come when two out of every three Jews, now the one under Hitler was one out of every three Jews killed, the next one, two out of every three Jews will be killed. That's Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 8. As you listen to these stories, you're going to understand how all current events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. That's the reason we take a look at these current events in light of biblical prophecy. Another example, Dr. Rob Congdon, he reports on the European Union and what they're doing. I asked him about a headline I had seen this week entitled, Europe Making Islam Great Again. Well, the spread of Islam now is into the European continent. It's quickly going from nation to nation, and there is much concern from the European leaders who do not want to see Russia more involved, for example, in the Ukraine, and then that's just the front door to all of the European Union. NATO dispatched to try to shut down what's happening with Russia in that area of the world But I must remind you that Europe's not going to make Islam great again because in the first six months of the tribulation period, as they try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel, God will intercede and he will destroy the Islamic world within the first six months of the tribulation. Well, with the Olympics going on, the focus is on Korea, South Korea, but North Korea has moved and edged their way in to have a major PR propaganda ploy unfold at those Olympics, the joint teams between the North and South Koreans. Very interesting. However, Bob McGinnis told us that was simply a ploy to try to take the focus off of the danger of North Korea. Bob McGinnis from the Pentagon helped us to understand. Remember, the Bible tells us about North Korea as a part of the kings of the east coming at the end of the tribulation period. That's found in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. And because of what we've just said about all of our broadcast partners, our prophetic perspective on all of these news items, you can understand why we had the conversation with David James. The body of Christ, the church itself, must study Bible prophecy. It's one-third of the entire Bible. You cannot understand God's entire plan for mankind unless you understand the prophetic passages of God's Word. That is my prophetic perspective on the news today. You know what I've just told you, my dear friend? Everything seems to indicate the next event in God's calendar of activities. The rapture of the church is about to happen, and it could happen at any moment. Having made that statement, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.